You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, J.T. Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm really excited to have Laura Bazelon on the show with me. She has an amazing new book. It's called A Good Mother. And if you love legal thrillers, this is this takes it up a notch from everything that you... Uh, that you thought you knew about the genre. This is uh, will ha- will make you lose sleep at night for for all the right reasons, um, and a must have for your to be red pile going into this summer and, and spring season. Welcome to the show, Laura. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to to chat today, um, Laura. We begin each show with the same question, and that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? My grandmother was a really remarkable woman, and I think she was someone who, had she been born in a different era, would have had a very high-powered career, possibly as a lawyer herself. And what she was wonderful at doing was telling stories. She was just an amazing raconteur of her youth and all of these adventures that she had. And what made me want to be a writer was writing them down and making them permanent. And I started doing that in second grade. And I just realized there's all this power to storytelling, not just orally, but also translating it onto the page. That's, that's great. Um, were you a, a bookish kid, Laura? Were, were you a you know a kid that walked around with her nose in a book all the time? Yes. My mom took my three sisters and me to the library once a week. And we had a great relationship with our librarian, Mr. Moody, and he was wonderful at recommending all kinds of books. And my sisters and I were all avid, voracious readers to the point where once my parents took us to Wyoming to one of the national parks there, and my dad would complain that while we were driving through the park, instead of looking at the moose and the deer, we were all (laughs) had our nose in our books and he would sort of grumble about it. But that's how obsessive we all were. Oh, that is fantastic. If if only we would have had audiobooks then, then everyone could look out the window and all read along at the same time. You know, that's an excellent point. But one thing that my family did do that was extremely effective on long car rides where there weren't any moose to look at was instead of getting into fights, which was inevitable if left to our own devices, my older sister and I started reading out loud Robert B. Parker Spencer detective books to the whole family. And <laughs> everybody was riveted. We were the only ones who didn't get car sick, so that's why we got to trade off reading, and it was a very effective way to pass the time. So we were sort of the pre-audiobook family. That is fantastic. That is fantastic. Um, Laura, you uh, went on to become uh, an attorney, and you are a practicing attorney as well as an author. Um, did When did you realize that these two pursuits could intersect as well as they do? I always hoped that they would. And so ever since I took a fiction writing class in college with the author, Mary Gordon, I just hoped that I would be able to be a writer, but I also really wanted to be a lawyer and I wanted to represent people who had been accused. 
of terrible things and try to help them out of that situation. And so for a long time, I had these parallel lives where I would wake up early in the morning and do some writing and then I would go to work. And um, eventually, ultimately, I was lucky enough finally on a third attempt to get a novel published, which is why I'm here today and really happy about it. But I guess to answer your question, as long as far back as 20 years ago, I was always hoping it was possible. I, I think a, a lot of us have a romantic view of the law and of, of practicing law because we have, uh, you know, had such great um, legal fiction uh, to read and 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 movies to watch that really just play up the uh, all the things that that we love about uh, unwinding a story and 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 telling it to to the audience who who you know may or may not be a jury at the time um, and we we really romanticize the idea of this and then um, I have an aunt who who was an attorney and I, several friends. And, uh, you know, invariably you have that conversation where, uh, you know, they say, oh, but it's not all, you know, the courtroom drama. There's the, there's 80 percent of practicing law that has nothing to do with, you know, grandstanding and in, in front of a jury and and, and all of that. Um, did you ever have a, a moment like that where you you wished it was one thing and then you got into it and said, oh, this this is not exactly what I hoped it would be? I think there are a lot of very unhappy lawyers out there. In fact, I feel like the empirical evidence probably makes that argument for me. <laughs> but to be honest, I really enjoy, I would say, about 90 percent of practicing law, even though you're absolutely right that most of it is not in the courtroom. And I think it's because I'm very lucky in my career and that I've always gotten to do exactly the kind of work that I've wanted to do and the cases that I've litigated have always been fascinating to me. So even the writing and the research and the investigation and all of the fact development is something that that grabs me. And I'm enough of a dork that I'm really interested in the way that the law operates and learning about how precedent connects with developments in the law and how you turn that into an argument. And so I have to say, I'm one of maybe the fortunate few lawyers who is very rarely bored by my job. I love it. Um, you're also a, a law professor. Um, how do you how do you feel like teaching uh, informs your writing? I, I, I love that, uh, you know, to talk to people who not only write, but then teach as well. Um, do you feel like the um, the role of a teacher makes you a better writer? I do, because to be a good teacher, you've got to be able to get your ideas across in a way that's accessible and a way that your students who are learning about the law but are novices can grasp and understand. And in a lot of ways, that's like writing for a lay audience. So you just don't want to be heavy on the jargon and go to these highly theoretical places that are very confusing. And so I think it helps in that way. And the other reason why it helps is because it keeps my mind fresh because when you're engaging with this material with people who've never come to it before, they have questions and perspectives that you've never considered. And that ends up influencing the way that I write too. Gotcha. Um, Laura, did you say that, that a good mother was the third novel that you have written and, and tried to get published? Yeah. So I wrote a novel in my twenties that was kind of a memoir and I'm sure horribly written. I haven't revisited it in a long time <laughs> and was not published. And then I wrote a precursor to this book, which had the same characters and a different plot. 
And that book was able to get me an agent, but we were not able to sell it. And so it was just a crushing disappointment because we got close, but in the end it didn't work out. And I just kept trying because I felt like, I don't know, it's sort of like being a public defender. You lose and lose and lose and lose, and then finally you prevail. So I think (laughs) I just came to it with that mindset that like I can keep going enough rounds that ultimately I'm going to be standing there with my arms in the air claiming victory. So, you know, you meet people, um, I've met lots and lots of writers doing this podcast and, um, you know, there are uh, a certain segment of the writer population that, that has a book that just almost sells and doesn't quite. Um, and, and one group of those people will then turn and, and write a completely different novel. And then that novel goes on to do it. And then some people will spend another two or three years just revising and working on that previous novel until it finally sells. Um, did you ever consider, you know, that, that, that other novel could be saved and, and, or, you know, can you just talk a little bit about that decision to, to move on to a new project and just knowing that this one didn't quite make it? Sure. And it's an interesting question for me because I end up being kind of a blend of the two people that you're talking about in that I decided to use the novel that was not published as part of the backstory. And so the protagonist in this novel, A Good Mother, her name is Abby Rosenberg. She had had a client in the past named Rayshawn Marbury. And that case had made her pretty well known, but it had also had a very significant impact on her psychologically. And that was a whole book. That was the book that never got published. It was Rayshon's case and his story. And so I kept a piece of it alive in this book by having some references to it throughout and sort of explaining how that case really had a formative impact on her character. What Death Taught Terrence by Derek McFadden. Life is a journey, so is the afterlife. At the end of his life, Terrence McDonald must discover its meaning or he'll be banned from the afterlife forever and his soul will cease to exist. Join Terrence and those who love him on a poignant and unforgettable journey through a life at once wonderful and harrowing. Learn what Terrence learned. See what Terrence sees. By this provocative story's end, readers may even learn a thing or two about themselves. See why people are saying things like, Derek McFadden writes with an insight you can match. If you like the works of Mitch Album, I think you'll find What Death Taught Terrence a worthy addition to your library and the reading of it, a life-affirming journey. I found the story immediately immersive and it stuck with me long after I finished. What Death Taught Terrence by Derek McFadden on sale now. Authors, I have a fantastic new service to tell you about. It's called PubSite. PubSite is a service to help you build your very own website, your home on the web, where you can promote your work and give your fans a place to connect with you. PubSite is a website platform that allows every author, regardless of budget, to have a great-looking professional website developed by the book marketing professionals at FSB Associates. PubSite is the new easy-to-use DIY website builder developed specifically for books and authors. Whether you're an author of one book or 20, 
or a small publisher, PubSite allows you to build, design, and most importantly, update your website pain-free. No need to be dependent on a designer or webmaster to make a small but costly change to your website. Save the money and do it yourself. PubSite is the best platform for authors because it's a book-centric platform. PubSite was built just for authors and small publishers. Every design, feature, and layout is book-centric. They have customized designs for you to use. It's easy to build. No coding or HTML is necessary to create a stunning, professional-looking website with all the features you want. Get a custom domain name, yourname.com. It's simple to update. You can add all of your books, add a blog and a book tour, sell from any retailer, manage your email list and social media, and even do e-commerce. Build your website with a 14-day free trial, then pay just $19.99 per month, which includes hosting. And we offer packages starting at $499 to set up the website for you. Pub-Site.com, the place to help authors find their home on the web. Gotcha. Um, the, you, you talked about the public defender's uh, office. Uh, what do you think are some misconceptions that, that the general public have about public defenders? And, and why uh, is this role so important to you? Most people, when they think about public defenders, probably refer to a show like Law and Order, where the public defender is bumbling and stupid and does a terrible job or is lazy or checked out and overwhelmed, which is not at all how the lawyers in my office were and most public defenders that I know. And actually, what's interesting is these jobs are incredibly competitive and hard to get, which is something else that nobody realizes. And they attract top-notch people who are incredibly creative and dynamic and hard driving and fascinating individuals. So I really wanted to bring that out to tell that story because even though this is fiction, that is very much a reality. The quality of lawyering in this book by the public defenders is absolutely a reflection of the lawyering that I saw in my office when I was a federal public defender and the lawyering I see every day when I go into court and watch other public defenders. Gotcha. Um, Laura, when you when you start thinking of a story, um, what is it that uh, that comes to you first? Is it is it a character? Is it um, is it a plot device that you're working on? And then the characters sort of, you know, take the stage of that plot. Um, what is it that, you know, when a story begins, what, what is that first thing that you start wrestling with? The first thing that usually happens for me is I think about the plot and it often comes from a case that I either worked on or watched or was somehow tangentially involved in or read about. And that forms the germ of the idea. And then I think, okay, how can you tell this story in a way that involves subplots and more twists and turns? And then the characters kind of form themselves around it. Gotcha. Um, you've also done uh, quite a bit of nonfiction writing, and, and you uh, have, have written columns and also a nonfiction book, uh, Rectify the Power of Restorative Justice After Wrongful Conviction. Um, at, talk a little bit about the differences in writing fiction and nonfiction other than the, the obvious, you know, one is made up and one is not. Um, but do you approach these two things differently or, or are there similarities in the way that you write a piece that you're, you know, a, a nonfiction piece that you're, you know, kind of walking through the, the thought process of that as opposed to the fictional account? 
So you're absolutely right that the major difference, of course, is that you have much more freedom in fiction and that you can go out on a limb and you can have your characters say and do things that you want them to say and do, regardless of whether that's remotely tethered to reality. And so that's a big difference. But I think a very strong similarity is that you need to do justice to your characters. And in Rectify, in this nonfiction book that I'm writing right now, which involves a lot of personal interviews and telling people's stories, you don't want to strip mine their lives and exploit them for the purposes of the book or for any selfish purposes. You want to be able to feel like they're going to read it and see themselves reflected back and that you've done justice to them. And that is the attitude that I take with the people that I interview who are actual people for my nonfiction. And that is the attitude that I take with my fictional characters, too. Are, are there things that you have picked up or learned along the way as a nonfiction writer that you think make you a better novelist? Yes, because I think I've been really lucky in my nonfiction writing to get to interview a vast number of people in this book that I'm writing now. I've interviewed 50 mothers who are diverse across ethnicity and race and religion and geographic area and type of job and number of children and sexual orientation. And just meeting all of these different people, I think, seeps into my consciousness in a way that when I sit down to write a story that I'm making up, probably has some influence over me. I think the more life experience you have, the more stories you come into contact with that are quite unlike your own, the better of a writer you're able to be. Um, Laura, in a book like A Good Mother, uh, when you have a um, when you have a tragedy that, that that begins the book like this does, and then you have someone um, who is under scrutiny, um, the uh, sometimes the the um, the allure might be to to make this person overly um, sympathetic to the reader, and uh, you know a, a really great book. Um, allows you to hold these characters sort of at arm's length um, so that you you don't have this this weird thing that happens where you you are cheering for a character that that may or may not be guilty. And um, how do you separate that um, so that you don't fall in love, for lack of a of, of a better term, with a character too much and keep the tension rising in a book like this? It's so important to do that, right? Because you just don't want to simplify and reduce people so that it's there's a good guy and a bad guy and someone right. obvious to root for. And I, I'm not interested in that. I think part of it is because I've had hundreds of clients over the years and they just don't slot into those categories very neatly. And with this person, this 19-year-old young mother who's accused, I thought it was really important to make it very ambiguous. Things about her thought process, her, her inner life, her motives, her behavior. I didn't want it to be, oh my God, this is so awful, this, uh, this abused woman, kind of a burning bed, Farrah Fawcett situation. I wanted the reader to really be asking themselves, what led her to do this? Why did she do it? And is she in fact guilty? And I think if you want that tension, you cannot simplify the characters, not at the beginning, not at the middle, not at the end. Do you ever find yourself when when writing a story like this, um, do you read back over what you've written and 
and edit yourself? Uh, I mean, obviously you do, but um, do you ever read back and say, mm, I, I gave too much to the reader here. Let me let me make this more vague or find a different way to tell this where I'm not giving away the plot, so to speak. Um, do you do you do that? Do you go back and check up on yourself and, and rework things that you've written? All the time. And in this book, I had to do it constantly. I was in my mind trying to figure out when to drop certain hints or when to maybe put forth a bit of a red herring and to make sure that I tied things up so that if I was signaling something at the beginning, there was a point to it. And that requires constantly going back and revising. Gotcha. Um, you deal with the topic of motherhood uh, in this book. What, what was the the initial um the initial thoughts that you were wrestling with when when this plot kind of came about to you, what what were some of the things that you wanted to explore? I was really wrestling with my own feelings about being a mother and being a trial attorney and feeling like I've had to make over the course of my life a series of very hard choices and also feeling extremely judged at times for the decisions that I've made because I think they were somewhat unusual. So, to give you an example, I've left my children for weeks at a time to try a case. And while I haven't done that frequently, I have done that. And it's because I felt really that in that moment, my client needed me more. And that's a very controversial thing for me to say to you, for it to be true of any mother and for a mother to act on. And I wanted the protagonist attorney at the center of this case to grapple with those same feelings, because I think Many ambitious women, in particular female trial lawyers, have that conflict, and yet there's really a taboo around talking about it or ever saying at any point, I picked my client over my kids in this particular context. I, I read a review um, that someone said that uh, that they read this book in in one sitting and it just would not let them go. Um, what do you think of when you hear uh, reviews like that? It makes my heart burst with happiness. I have to tell you that um, when I die, I hope that my gravestone or my obituary <laughs> says that I had two beautiful children that I exonerated to beautiful people and that I wrote a legal thriller that was beloved by its readers. Those are my hopes for my obituary. I think that's a, that's a pretty great thing to hope for, for sure. Um, Laura, how much um, of your real actual life and practice finds its way into a story like this? And and I, and I don't mean um, the thing that, uh, you know, people say, you know, it, how much of this is 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 true and um and you know we think that writers just take every personal experience that they have and and you know uh cloak it in story um but how much of of your true existence and and experience comes across in a story like this i would say a fair amount and not just my experience but i think the experience of other women in particular in this trial attorney protagonist's position. I mean, just for example, the kind of awful sexism that she and the prosecutor experience at the hands of the judge is unfortunately all too common. And writing about that did reflect my experience. Obviously, he's not a real person, but he is a composite character 
that sadly reflects a reality that faces a lot of female litigators. And so in writing that, I drew from my own experience in a way that that I think is sadly representative, but was also quite frankly cathartic for me. That's that's an interesting thing because I think I've heard you talk about before um, this idea of, uh, of of people saying to to female attorneys, um, you know, you really need to to play this role, and I'm, I'm making air quotes here. Or you know, the the jury is going to respond in a certain way if you behave a certain way in the in the courtroom, uh, as opposed to a male attorney who is going to get a different reaction from. Uh, from the the jury or the or the judge or whatever, um, how much of that is actually true, and and how much of that is just us playing to our stereotypes that we just expect? Um, if if that question makes sense at all, it makes a lot of sense, and it's an interesting question. And I I honestly don't know the answer. I felt like when I was trying cases on a pretty regular basis, and the advice I got was to really try to be like the girl next door. And not get angry because that made me seem unreasonable and not raise my voice because that was going to make me sound shrill and wear a skirt because that's what jurors expected to see and heels. I did all of those things. And so I don't actually have this counterexample where I didn't do it. And so all I can tell you is sort of what I felt like it was important for me to do because I believed it didn't matter how I felt about any of those things. It only mattered if it was going to help my client or worse, if by not doing them, I was going to be hurting my client. And so I, I never really went outside of that paradigm very much. And I guess the question really is, are women who are going outside that paradigm more now because maybe our standards have changed or our mores are a little bit more flexible? Are they meeting with resistance? Are they meeting with skeptical jurors? Are they meeting with a lot of pushback? And based on what I've seen from younger women coming up, I think the answer is probably no. And I think at this point, a lot of judges and jurors and colleagues expect or are willing to, I guess, tolerate a broader range of dress and speaking and behavior from female lawyers. And I think that's very positive. That is indeed. Um, Laura, I know you mentioned earlier that you are working on a follow up uh, to a good mother. Now, how do you um, how do you follow up a book like this? Is or uh, any of the characters uh, going to carry over? Is this a completely new slate? Uh, what, how do you follow up a book like this? It is a completely new slate, at least the germ of the idea that I'm working on. And I haven't gotten very far. So I guess it's possible that maybe I'll abandon this idea, but it's, it's different characters and it's a different type of case and a different kind of legal issue. And it's set more in the present day, whereas a good mother is set probably like 15 or 16 years ago. So I'm kind of starting all over again, which is really scary to be honest. Well, I can't wait to see what you come up with next. Uh, A Good Mother is available everywhere now. You can get it in Kindle edition or paperback if you want to hold a a physical copy in your hand. Also, audiobook, um, which we know that that, uh, Laura is uh, is an audiobook uh, person from way back. Um, You can listen to this book as well. We're going to put links to all of those uh, ways that you can get the book in the show notes of this episode. Uh, Laura, if people are just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you do, where can they find you online? 
Sure. So I'm on Twitter at Laura Bazelon and I have a website, laurabazelon.com, which actually does a pretty good job of collecting most of the things that I've written. So if people want to check it out, that would be awesome. Excellent. We'll put links uh, to there as well. Laura, this has been so much fun chatting. Thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Thank you. I love talking to you. Authors, if you're looking for a partner to help ensure that your book is the best it can possibly be, look no farther than Pico's House. Crystal and her staff make a conscious effort to be critical yet courteous. They also strive to make the business side of things run smoothly so that you can rest easy knowing that your manuscript is in capable hands. Whether you need beta reading, developmental editing, a manuscript critique, line editing, copy editing, or proofreading, Pico's House is the one-stop shop for you. Check them out today at picoshouse.com to get started.